Welcome to Healthy Outcomes, a Baker Tilly podcast, where we'll informally discuss topics such as financial sustainability, value-based care, cybersecurity, and more. Baker Tilly is a leading advisory tax and assurance firm dedicated to helping healthcare organizations be financially sustainable. Each episode will bring you a topic or guest that will help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Let's get started. My name is David Gregory. I'm a principal with uh, Baker Tilly. I have a 30-year-plus career in working with providers, payers, and life sciences companies. And I'm happy today to have a couple of guys that uh, manage pretty significant books of business when it comes to managed care. We've got uh, Stephen Briggs from Cooper University Hospital down in Camden, New Jersey. And so I'm also happy to say we've got Quinn Smith from Mount Sinai Health System. You, Most of you have probably heard of both of those health systems, and we're, we're happy to have them on board to talk about managed care and where we go from here. So now we're to the discussion phase. So um, Stephen and Quinn, uh, you know, the, these are the six or seven questions that uh, we want to, um, you know, start going back and forth on. And, and we can, some of them we might have already touched on, so we'll you know, we, we may or may not hit all seven of them, seven of them individually. But uh, I guess, first of all, we did talk a little bit about price transparency. But Stephen, did you have anything to add in terms of how will providers and payers prepare, educate members regarding optimal use of the new transparency information that's becoming available? Uh, any Anything you had to share in terms of things Cooper's doing to to make it easy for patients to consume this information or anything like that? Well, you know, David, uh, I don't think we have anything that's earth-shattering in terms of innovation, but we're, we're just doing uh, the basic blocking and tackling, right? We're staying true to our mission, and, and we're trying to create the, the ultimate patient experience for our patients. So to that end, you know, we've uh, built a pretty robust provider portal, if you will, or hospital portal, such that uh, our patients or prospective patients can um, access whatever information they actually need uh, in terms of pricing. We also have uh, financial navigators that are available to answer specific questions. Um, and it's just a matter of uh, helping patients get the exact information that they need and, and how to uh, bump up against their benefit plan so that they can make a good decision. You know, we also take the opportunity to discuss what Cooper has to offer and, and, and what it is that we do and why we have such a reputation here in southern New Jersey. So. Again, nothing earth-shattering, but um, we do take advantage of price transparency. And, um, again, uh, we've embraced it, and we're using it as a tool, again, to uh, enhance our overall patient uh, experience. Great. And so, so you, are, you are looking at it. Uh, you, you just said you are, you're embracing it. So you're looking at it as, a, as an opportunity as opposed to, you know, something to resist um, I, I, is, is what you're saying. Think, Absolutely. Right? Okay. Absolutely. Yep. Okay, and and Quinn, uh, any any uh, any thought process, you know, uh, uh, other other than that, with regard to uh, price transparency? Uh, yeah, we, so at, at Mount Sinai, we are taking the opportunity of the federal and also of the state requirements because New York State is pretty aggressive in coupling alongside of the federal transparency requirements, and New York State is actually pushing providers to give every patient. Um, from the hospital perspective, a, a, a pre-quote of the services for elective services um, of what 
the contracted rate would be or what their expected out-of-pocket um, is going to be for a procedure or even a service at uh, one of our facilities or outpatient locations. So we are in the process of implementing a very robust uh, patient estimator tool that not only will be available to the members or our patients on our web portal, but where we will have access through a digital portal that we're building out currently for mobile access. <clears throat> and then all of our front-end registrars and um, access points and scheduling uh, staff will have access so that they can also offer the same quote to the patient for it. So, um, and we're combining this um, over time with our employee providers so that we can give the patient that 360 view of what their expected out-of-pocket expense will be for procedures. We believe uh, a well-informed patient is going to be a much happier patient and will um, increase our self-pay collections. Uh, and we do see this from implementing it in uh, our main location, Mount Sinai Hospital, our self-pay collections have gone up. So the better communications and transparency you have, I, um, I believe the patients can schedule their procedures or engage in the proper conversations with us about affordability. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I, there's a data point right there, right? That, you know, you improve communication and, and you allow patients to understand what they're doing and what they're being charged for and, and what they're about to experience. And, and uh, it, it actually results in, 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 in more dollars, you know, coming in that are owed, you know, to the, to the health system is what I think I just heard you say, Quinn. So that's, that's mm -hmm. a great, you know, interesting data point to, to validate the fact that, you know, more education of your patients and your um, consumers in your service area can, can pay off in more ways than one. Right. So with regard to the second question, we, we already talked a little bit about COVID-19, but I maybe, Quinn, if I could just give you the floor for a minute or two. I, you know, I mean, Mount Sinai is one of the premier organizations in the country, actually probably in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, you've done some innovative things that I think COVID, you know, really, as we said before, right, COVID kind of made them more mainstream. But would you would you mind just describing a, a program or two that, may have started, you know, pre-pandemic, but really became kind of uh, more mainstream because of COVID, because it's, you know, taking the care out of the institutional setting. Sure. So I think it's probably not a surprise to anybody that telemedicine, telehealth, virtual visits really took off due to COVID. We're now looking to deploy that with our, uh, throughout our clinically integrated uh, network, especially around our to our primary care providers for specialty care um, who might be on the outskirts of our uh, catchment area for patients to come into one of our locations, mainly located in the New York City area, main, specifically Manhattan. So that that is one of the enhancements that we're looking to start to deploy. Um, we were deploying it for patients to use during, during COVID. Another uh, area that Really, uh, we had prior to COVID, but became very important during COVID and that is now in the contract mode with every significant payer we have is our community paramedicine. This is where uh, we will deploy one, either our paramedics or a contracted paramedic 
service, ambulance service, to the patient's home, and there'll be that virtual consult with an emergency room physician and the paramedic to assess the patient's need for being taken to the emergency room, to an urgent care, or can we care for the patient there in the home right there, or do we have to deploy uh, our hospital at home program that we're in a joint venture with and then really just care for the patient in the home, um, but giving them hospital level of care for it. Uh, we utilized this during the pandemic heavily, and it got coupled very strongly with our virtual urgent care visits for uh, Mount Sinai Now and also for our physicians where a patient would call in and the physician would then order the community paramedicine service instead of having the patient go to the ER or go directly to an urgent care facility, we were able to care for the patient and dramatically decrease the number of patients being taken to the ED or even admitted. Um, and it's, it, it's one of the things that we have deployed and are now being used throughout our value base and fee-for-service agreements with the payers for it. It's very similar to a program. It's a Medicare program with the FDNY and several other health systems through the 911 in New York City also, a demonstration okay. project. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. That's good stuff. I We, we actually have a question that's related to this topic. Um, do either one of you guys think that, uh, you know, it's, the question is, are any of the panelists concerned that the payers will pull back on coverage of telehealth after the pandemic? Do we... Do we think this is kind of a new normal and, and the payers are going to continue to support the new normal? Uh, or do we think that when when uh, COVID calms down, uh, that we might lose that that telehealth coverage and support from the payers? Uh, do either one of you, Quinn, Quinn, if you don't mind going first and then maybe Stephen? I absolutely believe they will. They were They were actually trying to do so when things settled down in New York a bit. We've taken the opportunity of you need us now. You're going to contract with us for the future. Yep. So you, you need you need to take advantage of the opportunity we have now and establish that long-term contract. Several of them, and it, it's no secret when you look at their structure, several of them view that's their space, even though it is performing medicine. Um, but several of the nationals do have, the strategy to pull it back as soon as they can. Interesting. I mean, Stephen, is that is that is that your take as well, or anything anything different on that front in terms of the the coverage for telehealth that's been there during COVID? Yeah, I think I want to echo uh, what Quinn said. Um, we're certainly noticing that the, the the national payers are again starting to pull back and starting to limit um, reimbursement for certain um, uh, virtual visits for sure and, and telemedicine services. Um, I will say that some of our more regional um, payers, if you will, or statewide payers have embraced uh, telehealth, for instance. So um, it, it's a mixed bag for us, but um, I, I think locally here, um, at least in South Jersey, um, there's a mix. And fortunately, our local payers, our larger regional payers um, have embraced uh, telehealth and they're okay with us as providers um, using that mechanism to keep their members healthy. And that's what it's, uh, for them, that's what it's really about, too. It's, they have to keep those members healthy and um, maintain the quality of care. And they recognize that, you know, COVID is still here. It's, and it's surging 
right now. It hopefully will start to uh, decrease, but we're not sure if this cycle will be long-term or short-term or medium-term. And fortunately, some payers have recognized uh, the value of telehealth services and, uh, again, have maintained it. That's fair. That, that that was a great question. You know, it's a great great response, right? It's 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 a mixed bag, uh, but there's definitely some payers that you guys feel are going to retrench when when COVID is clear, um, and uh, that's uh, that's something to consider as you strategize about what services you want to put in your contracts, as as Quinn indicated, et cetera. So so good stuff. Uh, you know, the the last question on this slide is, um, you know, expensive technology, supplies, drugs, right? I mean, sometimes that's the it's a tough one, um, you know, and some of these things, the, the emphasis is on the word expensive, right? I mean, some of these technologies are really expensive, you know, and payers and providers have had unique ways of, of managing that to, to make sure that providers don't get left holding the bag for the super expensive stuff. You know, maybe Stephen first, uh, you know, any any kind of general thoughts, again, not asking for anything proprietary, but any any general thoughts in terms of the way the payers and providers and the industry can kind of you know, handle these expensive technologies and drugs uh, going forward? <laughs> this is a tough one, Dave. Um, I, I think it's really going to be about um, cost effectiveness um, and demonstrating the cost effectiveness of various technologies and, and certainly various drugs. Um, some drugs are uh, outsized in terms of price, and it's difficult to demonstrate where those savings meet um, the efficacy um, if you were to graph that out, what we've been able to do uh, and what we're certainly starting to do here at Cooper is, at least for certain technologies, building some of those non-financial terms um, into our agreements that we uh, we first touched on earlier in our yep. uh, in, in discussion, such that we are committed to add certain new technology services um, into our agreements. And therefore, as new services come along, we have a built-in mechanism for, for reimbursement that uh, we feel will, will meet those costs. It's difficult to anticipate what all those new technologies and services will be, uh, but we do have mechanisms that we're building into our newer agreements and renegotiations now to afford us that, uh, that sort of flexibility. Drugs tend to be more problematic for us um, uh, where we can. Uh, we're looking to carve out certain drugs, particularly uh, uh, your higher cost uh, cancer focused um, drugs, but that's a challenge. And oftentimes, you know, payers being who they are, don't necessarily want to pay at a higher cost because they're not necessarily as concerned about the, the efficacy of the drug. They think there may be other drugs, there may be other te uh, techniques that should come first. And so it becomes a challenge. And um, that's why I like to partner with some of our medical directors and physicians here at Cooper to help me build a case um, in terms of meeting with some of these uh, payers and their medical directors to say, hey, this is why we feel this is important. This is why we feel it should be uh, appropriately uh, reimbursed so that we can take, take care of your members. Now, do we win all the time? No, but we don't lose all the time either. So it's, I think it's just a matter of getting ahead of that curve and trying to be as innovative as you can. And uh, I think having uh, good relationships and collaborative relationships with your payers um, make that all easier. That, that's well said. I, so you're, you know, part of your comment was there, you know, let's get it on a quality level, right? Let's let's not talk about dollars and cents, but let's talk about quality um, and, and let's get the right people in the room to talk about quality. Right. And so somewhat simplistic, but very effective strategies for elevating the conversation, you know, so that the payer might be more receptive to absorbing, you know, more expense. Right. So that's that's great stuff. And um, and, and Quinn, I 
I, I think we spoke about an example here of something super expensive that um, where you had identified a trend out there. Uh, um, so uh, your, your thoughts on, on this question before we move to, uh, into the final stretch here? Uh, sure. So I'm going to use the example of CART-T therapy um, by Yes Corda, and it's a trend. I see the payers reaching out, A, to the manufacturers or the supply, the manufacturers or the pharmaceutical companies. Um, you're seeing them do that in the pharmaceutical companies with direct contracting with the manufacturers to have sole access to their members as the distributor. Um, OptumRx does that. If you look at the way uh, Yes Carter went about the deployment of uh, their CAR-T therapy, and they've continued to do this as it expands and their competitors do, they're going directly to the payers and negotiating the reimbursement for that therapy prior to us ever being involved in uh, the discussion. So by the time it reaches the, the, the health system, the, the, the price is set. And so the payers already struck the price with Yes Carta. We're just a pass through on that. And really our reimbursement isn't going to be anything on the, uh, on the markup of the, the, the technology supplies or drugs. We have to really build that any margin back into our care and delivery of care, which a lot of these new therapies and technologies um, you don't have enough experience to really know what that revenue base should be. Yeah. Um, you, you know, and it, it, it changed. It can go up. It can go down with, with, you know, CAR T. We saw the, it start high on the clinical side from the hospital's perspective and then drop as we became more efficient in the care of the patient. Originally, it was they were going to have X number of days in the ICU. We found that that dropped significantly. So if we were able to contract early on, that became our margin base versus other areas. Uh, but you see more and more conversations happening with the payer. Um, there's a national payer who is now coming in and questioning reimbursement on implants because they're saying, no, the average implant cost is this. Why are we paying this large markup? Even though we, we have a specific contracted rate, they're coming in and starting to question it. So they're digging deeper into what our costs are. And I think a term you'll hear, if you haven't heard it, is these are commodities. Why yep. are you marking them up? My response, just so everybody knows, is when you take your car in to have your brakes done, that mechanic's marking up those brake pads, believe it or not. Why can't I mark up that? Yeah, it's a great analogy. And I'm sure every payer agrees with you, Quinn, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they all look and they go, no, they don't mark them up. I said, well, maybe you should be having a conversation with your mechanic or your dealer <laughs> and see how much they're marking up their services. Right. Oh, it's a minimum I... of three to four times. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, certainly, I, you know, this is an expensive line item, um, you know, for everybody in their managed care agreements and relationships. And we just wanted to make sure we spent a few minutes, you know, talking about some of the trends out there and, and, and some of the, the ways to think about, um, you know, getting expensive technology, supplies and drugs uh, paid for, even if the payers are going to say it's a commodity. Um, and then so I, we are in the home stretch here, but I want to make sure I, I get the input from um, our two panelists on the the medical groups, right? Because we did promise you at the outset that 
we would talk for a couple minutes because we've already talked about VBC, which are some of the other questions. But guys, and, and maybe Stephen first, um, your employed medical group, um, are, are what, you know, is there anything you can share in terms of ways to kind of improve the perform the financial performance of your employed medical group? Or is there a strategy with the managed care companies that has been helpful? Or is there something with your actual employed medical group that's been helpful to, to you know, to kind of improve financial performance? I mean, Stephen, if you don't mind going first. Sure, David. You know, this is another tough uh, question. Um, I don't believe that there's really a lot you can do, but uh, certainly what, what we're certainly trying to do um, as an academic medical uh, center is focus our physicians and our advanced uh, practice providers on the care of those patients. Um, too often we think that um, physicians get involved in the pre-certification process and uh, battling other uh, payer medical directors from a peer-to-peer standpoint. Um, so one of the things we're trying to do, at least in contracting, is to minimize the need for and streamline the pre-certification process. Uh, we've identified certain services and procedures that uh, we do fairly routinely and which are routinely authorized. So we're trying to make those more or less um, automatic such that our physicians don't necessarily have to worry about trying to chase down an authorization. Our physicians are pretty much payer agnostic to begin with. Um, and they're just there to, to, to treat those, those patients. So trying to get them to understand all the, the multitude of rules and regulations and hoops that you have to jump through, it just, it just doesn't fit into the culture that we have here at Cooper. So it's, it falls upon uh, us administrative types to figure out how we can, again, streamline the processes for them, yep. remove those hassle factors. And as a result, we believe um, decreased denials and therefore uh, improve our, our, our revenues and cover our costs that way. That's a great point. And there is precedent, um, you know, in the Northeast for the payers agreeing to kind of backing off a little bit on some of the pre-auth, uh, you know, if you as a provider, um, and, and this is in other regions of the country too, not just the Northeast, if, if you as the provider can demonstrate that your doctors are making good decisions um, and, and the pre-auth is, is really not adding any value for either party, uh, we are aware of precedent of, of some relaxation uh, of those pre-auth requirements for particular providers that, you know, that can prove that their docs are making good decisions. So uh, that's a, that's a good point, Steve. And uh, you know, Quinn on, on on the medical group front, and then we'll we'll close this down um, after that. But uh, Quinn, any any thoughts from you in terms of ways to to help employed medical groups on the on the financial side? Sure. I mean, the first thing is is what I stated in the onset of my introduction. Um, we go to the payer as one entity yes. uh, through yep. our clinically integrated network. So you either are contracting with us as an entity entirely or you are not contracting with us. So, you know, you have to use all of your leverage points when negotiating with payers. It's not, I don't think it's hidden in the marketplace. There are national payers who have significant ownership of physician groups, Um those physician groups are most likely being enhanced very well in their reimbursement rates compared to what we're achieving or the marketplace is achieving uh, for non-owned uh, medical groups. It, it makes sense. It just is shifting money from one side of the house to the other side of the house to increase their profit margin. Uh, and we're not that. We're pro- profit leakage for it. 
I, I do agree with what Stephen stated. You have to go in and you have to limit the administrative hurdles across your system um, to care for your patients and prove to the payers you're efficient. And it's not just about unit costs. Uh, there are payers who believe it's all just unit costs now, even though they might say something else publicly. It's just uh, it's a unit cost war, but it's not unit cost. It's total cost of care. And they'll flip flop on those two conversations during your discussions. Focus on the total cost of care and the quality of care you're offering. Uh, and then it's not necessarily unit cost issue for you. Yeah. So that's the imperative about going in and protecting the physicians also. Excellent. Well, well, guys, um, you know, we, we have to land this plane and I uh, want to thank everybody for, uh, for joining today and, and to Quinn and Steven, you know, thank you for, uh, you know, for your for your excellent insights today. Uh, you know, that last topic about ambulatory joint ventures, I, I'll speak for the guys and say that, you know, though the you know, ambulatory joint ventures for for acute care systems is really part of the fabric now and you really need to be understanding kind of what what the cost of freestanding care is versus what the cost of the care is in your institutions. Um, and make sure you're competitive, um, you know, versus ambulatory freestanding uh, units that that can compete very effectively on cost, but maybe not quality, right? So just to just to kind of address really quickly that ambulatory JV question there that was at the bottom of the list. We won't have time to pick our our, our panelist brains on that, but I. But again, uh, thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Quinn. Um, thanks for everybody's uh, attention. Um, everybody have a, a great rest of the day, and uh, we'll we'll talk soon. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. To receive notifications when new episodes are available, please subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts. For additional resources, check out bakertilly.com.